Hello and welcome to Half-Stack Data Science, a show about data science in the real world. We're continuing Season 3 talking to various data educators with a conversation with Laszlo Schragner. Laszlo runs Hypergolic, a boutique consultancy in London specializing in machine learning product management. Formerly, he was head of data science at Arcara, a fintech startup in London, where he built market intelligence products with natural language processing for tier one investment banks and hedge funds. Before that, Laszlo worked in mobile gaming for King Digital, makers of Candy Crush, specializing in player behavior and monetization. He started his career as a quant researcher, implementing trading strategies at multiple investment managers. We talked to Laszlo about consulting in the area of machine learning, what data scientists can learn from software engineers, how to upskill data scientists to be better programmers and make programming their craft, and of course, how AI tools will impact all of this. So please enjoy our conversation with Laszlo Schragner. Okay, we're here with Laszlo Schragner. Laszlo, welcome to the podcast. Uh, thank you for having me and uh, hi to the audience as well. So, Laszlo, we'll start with uh, the question we ask everyone, which is, what's your job title and what do you really do all day? My, my, my job title, um, I'm, di- I'm a director of a, of a consulting company um, that does um, machine learning product management. Uh, and anything else related to this company is, uh, or, or related to this title is my job. Um, our, our motto is to make machine learning less frustrating uh, and um, we are having a lot of things to do in this matter because uh, it seems like everyone is really frustrated about this. Presumably you were really frustrated with it as well. I mean, what was your journey into deciding that this is what you want to focus on? Yeah, so I have a degree in computer science. Um, I, I actually mastered in, uh, in artificial intelligence in 2002. So I spent a lot of time in this business. Uh, I was a quant, so that was like proto MLOps, machine learning, productionized machine learning uh, at two hedge funds. Um, and then I was a data scientist on Candy Crush, uh, which was like the traditional BI style work uh, next to my machine learning knowledge. Um, and then I was a founder at a startup as head of data science, um, industrial scale, natural language processing. And that was pretty much where I felt that things matured to a part where it can be as a profession. And then there is any kind of like subject uh, domain knowledge that you can collect and then sell it as a consulting company. Um, And what we are selling is pretty much answers to questions what we had back in that company that was doing news processing for investment banks. So what's your sort of main focus? Like what's the most common thing that you help clients with? Because there's a lot to do, right? In People who are frustrated in machine learning, there'll be lots of angles of attack, but what's your main? Yeah, if you yeah. go to any Gartner conference, there's so many reasons, apparently, to be frustrated with <laughs> machine learning, <laughs> including for people who aren't actually doing it. Yeah. Um, obviously, when you, you know, consulting services are just a product like everything else, you need to sell it and you need some kind of differentiating uh, aspect. And obviously, you don't want to accidentally walk into an area where you know big four giants or MBB giants there are because obviously they are much better at this than you are going to be. Um, and also we don't want to describe ourselves as these kind of outsourcing MLOps companies 
when you have a data science team, you know, who are all of them are statisticians, but they can't productionize their work. So they outsource the MLOps to, to a company. These are all um, reasonable business um, models. And, and there are like plenty of companies we work with. Uh, but our focus is machine learning product management. It means that you want to solve a problem. You think it, it is AI or machine learning that it requires, then we will going to be the people who tell you whether you are right or not, you know, or <laughs> how can we rephrase this problem to actually make it work? What else works? Because obviously you usually don't know how it is work. Um, and then um, provide you some kind of roadmap, some kind of uh, uh, you know checklist of what you need to do to actually make this happen. What, uh, I'm sure it's commercially sensitive, but can you give us an idea of the distribution of the statistic that summarizes how many of the things you are asked turn out not to even need ML at yeah. all. <laughs> and what do you do? Obviously, obviously, we are not enemies of our own. <laughs> of course, of course. Yeah. Um, usually, there are typical problems that that are um, good targets for for um, for machine learning. Um, you know, manual processes, high amount of touch points, you know, a lot of recorded data, uh, fuzzy rules, so you can't implement like uh, from a software engineering techniques. Um, and usually when we are engaging with a company, uh, they either try to do this on their own and it's our job to like direct them in a direction that, that they need or reframe their problem in a way that it is commercially uh, viable for them. And then, of course, sometimes we need to say, say for projects, especially like very niche, very edgy questions where this is a research question. Do you want to fund a project that answers the hypothesis that this is possible or not? And we can't tell you in advance, but we can do it for the least amount of money that you can afford, right? Uh, in the end, you are going to be smarter, right? And, and you either get the answer that this is how much more money you need to invest, or you should do something else. This is uh, all very interesting and uh, triggering in a way in, in both David and mine's background. There's lots and lots of telling people that they might need to invest in things that allow them to count things properly, you know, fix up their data quality uh, in some way, um, answer the simple version of the question first. Um, really interested in is there a is there a type of person or profile of company that is easier for you to convince that they need the help that you can provide like <clears throat> to summarize the question even shorter do people need to have tried and stumbled a number of times before they reach the enlightenment that they might need specialist help uh, yes that that is that is a very typical situation that we enter into a an organization that tried this and potentially burned themselves and you need to deal with a lot of politics and frustration and face saving um, and obviously we need to like diplomatically manage this and obviously as an eastern european that's not the easiest thing to do um, david i'm sure you are are, are, are understanding me um, <laughs> but we are always thinking about that uh, maintaining machine learning and AI capabilities is a is a strategic goal. So if a company comes to us and they say, 
you know, we want to go into AI because the competition goes into AI. That's a perfectly valid business uh, movement, you know, even for marketing or PR purposes. Our job is to tell you uh, how to do or what to do with it, all right? Uh, what kind of um, skill sets and then processes you need to onboard to, to make this a viable thing. Um, do you want to invest in this? Because obviously, it's easy to do it marketing-wise. You know, you can just write it in, in your in your copy, and that's it. It's done. It's, uh, no one will gonna check with. Well, it. now, ironically, AI will write it for you now. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Um, but I, I I do think that that first every company should be an AI company, and then if you come to us, we will going to find something to make this meaningful and and business-wise valuable. So if you go to someone who has tried to make it happen but failed somehow, what are the reasons for their difficulties or what's the most common failure for, for an ML project where you step in and, and help out? Everything, everything. Uh, you know, <laughs> projects break Simultaneous down. failure across all failure points. And, and, and that, that's it because like machine learning is not a very forgiving subject. You know, there's so many problems that it can, that can break down is that you know, data quality, skill set, operations, you know, agility, um, technical knowledge or subject matter expertise or or engagement from the company. And then obviously these can turn into this kind of negative feedback loop or, or positive feedback loop uh, that that breaks down the entire system and then and then the project just like fizzles out or everyone just gonna resign because everyone burns out of trying to maintain these systems but essentially we have like a, a kind of like a process or or, or a, a structured way of thinking about this that we will go through this in in meetings um, uh, which are are, are like like classic system design questionnaires where we are checking, do you have the right infrastructure? Do you have the right processes to fix these, these data quality issues, you know, and then, and then go through this entire list. Uh, and most likely, no, the answer for half of these are no. Um, and then we were going to suggest you of what do you need to do to fix this? Because these are all essential components to have like a, a machine learning um, product. And I'm just going to, to make an assumption here, but I remember you made a, a GitHub repository full of articles of why data science projects fail, right? And I remember it was like 99% business stuff. And is that is that still the case? So the the failure is never because they're not good enough at the the machine learning algorithm training part, or does I, that come up as well? I, I, I wouldn't be that pointy. One thing what I find is, and, and this is one of the reasons we practically do no data science at all, because one thing what we found is that data scientists, when we turn up at the company, they are well-trained. You know, if you have a degree in machine learning, if you have a degree, let's say in physics, and then train yourself to be a machine learning scientist, you know, you're pretty much done. You know, there is very little we can we can teach you about how transformers work. You know, and just go and and watch. You know, Carpathy's video on that. You know, you can't compete there. Uh, what we found is often um, um, business strategy is not well defined, so it means that the machine learning or the AI strategy and the data strategy are unable to align to it. You know, lack of skills in terms of. Um, um, engineering maturity and, and process maturity uh, that will make any kind of financial estimation difficult. It means that often 
you, you can't answer these questions because the data science team doesn't have a concept of a system um, that would uh, deliver these kind of values. Okay, maybe maybe I can just reframe it. Um, so so essentially, to to be able to uh, describe of what's your expectations from a machine learning project, you need to have some kind of process definition of making this happen. Uh, and if your answer to everything is like, I don't know, we're going to see, you know, that's a problem because uh, because the business leaders quite rightly, we're going to see is like, you, this is not an answer. You need to tell me, is it three months or five years? And do you need two people or 20 people? You know, and, and, and this is one of the biggest problems with, with machine learning project because it, this turns every pro, uh, machine learning project a toy project. So if the business is not on your side and unwilling to fund you, you are in trouble. That's the business problem. And then obviously engineering process is a problem as well because a lot of uh, data scientists, while very good in maths, uh, and then they have the data and then they have the, the mandate, you know, themselves not good enough engineers. Um, and that can lead very quickly to a state where um, a machine learning uh, project stalls uh, because uh, the changing environment is, uh, they are unable to, to, to catch up with the changing environment, right? Uh, like this is what agility means, you know, and you maintain agility by code quality and engineering quality. And if you can't do that, then you're in trouble. So how do you approach that conversation with a business who wants you to say you will deliver in two months and six days and five hours? Like, how do you, um, I don't mm. know what the word is, how do you sort of make them understand that, you know, this is the agile process and you can't, you can't do it as a waterfall thing. And what, what's, what, what does that look like? Yeah, that's a, that's a, that's a good point. Um, often, um, you need to make some way of estimation. You need to put dollar values uh, on, on on various assets and various like activities, um, and time time wise, you know how much how much people do you need to have data labeling? You know, do you have a connection to the subject matter experts who will going to do the labeling at the company? You know, if that's not happening, you know, um, you you will not going to have any kind of estimations. And then, you know, sometimes let's say in a in an underwriters in an insurance company, uh, someone wants to create a machine learning tool, you know, and then we were proposing that you, the underwriters need to, you know, manually check some of the results. And then it turns out that this is actually going to be, you know, an expensive project because underwriters are doing their own job. And then, okay, then who is going to buy the commitment to the to the project? If the company itself will going to say it's like, oh, that's not how it works. So that's one one way um, uh, to, to see, oh, gauging commitment from various parts of the company um, and and the other one how we are actually technically help you obviously like um, uh, upskilling the team so they are going to gain um, technical skills and project management skills so how to run these projects and then third uh, we usually create a roadmap once you have like higher quality engineering skills, you can create roadmaps that are more suitable for this prediction, uh, that maintaining prediction. So for example, you can you can slice the problem into, into like vertical slices, like solve a sub, sub problem. And then based on that, the cost of that sub problem, you can extrapolate to the entire project. And then you are going to have more transparency and more uh, predictability. You were touched on people and upskilling and training a few times. Um, in, in my travels, I've seen a number of approaches to MLOps, all the way from 
every data scientist should completely own the end-to-end -end everything. And that was sort of the position mm -hmm. that Stitch Fix painted out for themselves uh, mm -hmm. a number of years ago. And then I have seen all the way at the other end what I would probably charitably describe as an anti-pattern of we don't want to get ourselves dirty with any of that making it wrong thing. So let's find people who have nothing to do to us and, and, and pay them to run our, run our models, run, run our, mm -hmm. our, our, our products. In the three years you've been kind of doing this as a, as a consultancy, have you seen progress moving away from those extremes or? Uh, I, I, I see everything. I mean, the, the, the traditional pattern of, of, um, uh, like five stages, like EDA, POC, MVP, you know, A-B testing, and then business as usual, you know, this, this is the typical way people describe, you know, part of that process is the throwing it over the fence. You know, when, when you describe um, your ML uh, product creation uh, in, in the traditional five steps, then you build into it the throwing over the fence. So this is a clearly an anti-pattern. Essentially, you are the tasks that's required in creating an ML product, you are separating it by convenience, right? Like like people who want do the first part is doing the first the, the, the first stages, you know, and engineers who doesn't want to get into the dirty of experimentation or doing the second phases, and then you just create problems with this. And I, I consider this an anti-pattern. So, so instead, we layer it like in an, a, um, a, a traditional engineering uh, structure where, you know, the more abstract, the, when I abstraction is, is more abstract means closer to the business, you know, or on the top, and then the, 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 the more concrete um, and engineering solutions are at the bottom, and these are like attached to it. But the abstract layers are end-to-end -end maintained by the data scientists. So it means that, uh, give you a, a, a classic example, which is I'm usually getting into fights on LinkedIn about this, is that we train the data scientists to be able to write a fast API um, service. So if they want to wrap their models into, into, into an endpoint, they can do that. Or we don't teach them to, to write a Docker container because there is going to be someone at the company who is much better at writing Docker container than any data scientist. So I, I, and, and this is pretty much where the abstraction level ends. You mentioned end-to-end, -end, so Stitch Fix, like everything you, you need to do in one person. I think that's too much, you know? Maybe Stitch, Stitch Fix in California can hire people who can do that, uh, but- But also to your point about like not thinking of it as a step-by-step functionally driven 1990s IT kind of a process, but rather yeah. a set of layers and how deep you go makes complete sense. And what some people who followed the Stitch Fix model failed to realize is that those 100 or 200 or 300 data scientists were supported by a platform team of 100 or 200 or 300 yeah. engineers building tools that let them do all of that uh, stuff. And as you were just saying, that is a very different world to almost every single other company or enterprise on the planet. Yeah, and we proud ourselves that I don't think like this separation roughly at the Docker container level, like let, let, let's stick to the fast API and Docker container level. 
this is achievable. Like, I don't think that I ever met with a data scientist who could not learn how fast API work. Like, that's a relatively low amount of um, intellectual activity compared to you're supposed to be an expert in mathematics and, and, and a lot of related numerical computation. You know, it's a, a relatively small amount of added value. If you expect them to do Docker, Kubernetes, you know, high availability systems, and, and then a lot of other things that people would, would say end-to-end -end owning these systems expect, you know, I, I don't think that's feasible. You know, that's just too much. There are, there are like what's called bounded rationality. It means that you are like some of the machine learning problems you try to solve are so complicated that a single person cannot imagine the entire solution. You can't keep it in your head, which means that it is creating frustration because because um, uh, your job is to do end to end, you know, but you can't do it, but you are supposed to do because that's your job, you know, and that's cognitive dissonance creates this frustration that will eventually burn out the people. Mm. Yeah, I, I think um, what one of the things you said, right, is you teach data scientists skills like fast API, which maybe is not a traditional data science thing. Maybe it's more of a software thing. And that sort of leads me to the thing that I definitely wanted to ask you about, which is your focus on making data scientists better programmers. Because mm -hmm. I think a lot of data science training just sort of rushes programming aside as one of the tools that they need to solve problems. Whereas I think your approach is that it's a central craft, right? Yeah, I, I, I usually describe this. Sometimes I get uh, like a feedback you know, your job is not to write code, but to add value and and, and various this uh, these quips uh, from people who doesn't want to learn how to write good code. But um, my 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 mental model on this is what's called form and substance, right? So substance is the business problem you try to solve, the business um, you know questions you want to implement, the 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 abstract algorithm that you want to solve, and form is how you do that. Right, and that's where you write clean code, you know, well-named variables, and and um, and put them on Git and solve these problems like that. And these are separate issues from each other. Yes, in some cases, you will going to get away and make a lot of money with terrible uh, engineering practices, but the amount of effort you need to spend on doing the form correctly is so low that you almost always. Um, better off if you learn how to do that and then practice it every single project you ever do. You know, there is no added value um, by having bad quality code in an EDA. You know, that you're not going to be faster because, because you don't care about that. Um, often data science teams don't know how to do good quality code. All right. So it means that, you know, uh, fixing an experimental project would expect them to actually learn how to do that and um, actually apply it to the already existing technical that project and okay that is expensive all right because because now you train the entire team to, uh, to to have better practices but if you this is a craft you start doing it and then at, after a while it is going to be native for you that that's just how you you you, you write code um, and, and and that's exactly what what our training does. Um, that's one of the only training what we do, because because that that doesn't exist anywhere else. You know, you can't really know how to how to set up a linter in a project in ten minutes. You know. So what, one of the themes that we've seen on on this podcast, talking to other 
trainers is that people who learn Python often learn it like from Stack Overflow or just pick up little pieces here and there. And so they what they need training in is some kind of fundamental, uh, you know, programming practices that they they didn't even think or they weren't even aware existed. And I, I'm hearing parallels with you. So you end up with data scientists who write code as a means to an end, but they don't know what they don't know about how to write good code. Is that is that what you get? Yes. Uh, often, first of all, we specialize on machine learning products. So it means that usually you end up some kind of deployed service or some kind of relatively complicated program, which somehow needs to be maintained over a long period of time. And that definitely requires engineering practices. The problem is, it like I I personally think the software engineers are struggling with this as well. So it means that uh, I was talking to to software engineers at a at a London meetup, and they were saying it's like you become a good software engineers by joining a good software engineering team, you know, not by somehow of education or somehow figuring it out yourself. And that's exactly because this is a craft. It's a it's a craft, but for data scientists, it's specialized for um, um, their own job, which is which I think is simpler from engineering or software engineering terms than an, a real software engineer's uh, job. So it means that you can't just start learning what they do uh, because ninety percent is not going to be relevant for us for them. Um, so we we collected all of the relevant knowledge uh, into uh, like a course. Um, and the course's job is to get from zero to one, all right? So you get um, through a hose pipe, uh, the, 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 all the element, what you need to know uh, how to write good code, and then you can practice it and then you can build this craft. That's how we, we think about the software engineering aspects of the work. But um, often data scientists don't appreciate that, that they are expected to write software. Um, and then someone will gonna check this code. And then there is a very good um, company and uh, influencer or thought leader in this space, um, I think his, uh, his his book was um, "Your Code as a Crime Scene." I think that that was uh, that was the name of uh, of, of his book, and, and, and <laughs> he he gives very good justifications of why do you need to maintain code quality because you're always going to get this 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 argument of oh we are prioritizing low hanging fruits or some kind of argument that you know people just say that to to send you away, and then you need to come back with like. Um, relatively straightforward arguments of why this is the best way to do these things, and 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 he works on it, and then we take a lot of um, his his thought from there and apply to to our code, um, and then we take other um, justifications from uh, what's called self determination theory of like how do you build motivations into what you are doing, and then why if you are writing bad code you are killing this software self determination theory, um, you know components and. Then you will going to end up frustrated and less performant and without it. So we have this kind of justifications. You need to sell this to data scientists. Like they are mathematicians, you know. Every other team is struggling, so they think that this is just uh, a struggle. Um, but uh, but th there is a solution for that. So who needs more convincing the your stakeholders? or the actual data scientists taking the training? Um, both. Usually data scientists are pretty receptive. Um, they usually feel this pain on themselves. You know, they, there are 
there are typical red flag arguments when we see a company that you know uh, no one touches that because because they are worried that be, they, it will break you know that's a that's a classic red flag you know it's like <laughs> then you then you need us right so that's pretty like you watch how they work and then you 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 can pick up that they don't know basic techniques that will going to make them much more efficient and then you can explain to them uh, or they actually fail you know they create buggy code and then they are in trouble and, and, and stuff like that so so that's usually easier the 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 stakeholders and obviously you know economic buyers who, who who has the budget for that some of the training budgets are just not 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 large enough like i i, I find that a lot of companies think about upskilling people as you know a perk you know you get a hundred pounds for let's say buying a book or you can watch an online course and it's like no it's like our job is to double your performance for the next three years. So it means and and making you know this this uh, you know data science team you know a nice and happy place you know instead of the the the, the madhouse what they are now. Um, so it's not going to be cheap, right? But the value is there. So you you are supposed to uh, predict the ten x value into. Uh, into anything where you ask for money, uh, and that's exactly what we are doing. So we justify this by a relatively uh, pessimist calculation of of how much value we are adding, and you know if that's the baseline and that's still ten x, you know maybe this is a this is actually a good business to do. Okay, that that was going to be my next question: is how you quantify it to someone who doesn't understand how bad quality software impacts your your day to day. Yeah, yeah. I mean, obviously there is one which is like like number of errors. But I often these data science teams are operating most of their time in experimental phase. So it means that 90% of the time is spent on making new experiments and 10% is to, you know, maintain old experiments. So it means that what we are selling is that your experimentation speed goes up much higher. Uh, the speed you need to move a working solution to production will going to be much reduced. Um, and the experimentation speed it can be justified by saying, you know, how many experiments can you run over a quarter, you know, or a, or a year, you know, and, you know, if you increase that by 50%, you are going to have more shots at the goal, right? So it means that if if that, if each of those have some kind of value, because obviously you have the data science team and the data scientist team uh, has, a, has a budget or a salary, you know, you are expected to produce 10 times more money, right? So it means that these things are quantified inside the company. So it means that if I can, if each experiment will going to have a budget value, right? And if you can do two, twice as much or five times as much, you know, then the data science team's value grows up without spending more money. And that's exactly the the, the way to, to budget these or, or argue about these uh, decisions. You said shots on goal and um, some of the other folks that we've talked to on the podcast this season Kind of have the mission of increasing the data literacy of the entire organization. So there's an interesting interface here between what you're trying to do around this team of ML specialists and then something that, again, David and I both faced in the real world that sometimes there's a lack of willingness on the business side to get creative and to solve problems in this particular way. Do you explicitly steer clear of overall product management and portfolio management, or do you kind of run into those flames uh, yourself? Often organizations have some kind of organizational breakdown. So for example, uh, data scientists or AI people are like shoved into one team where they can experiment with POCs 
because just to just to keep them silent because the company actually only need dashboards and, and and some basic bi and etl you know which is a perfectly fine fine thing and obviously you predicted my next question anyway yeah. <laughs> i'm i'm in the same business you know as you know i know all of these problems but um but the way uh, we part of our assessment is to understand organizational structures and then organizational problems and then discussing with the team is that you don't have machine learning products in production because your team is not talking to that team uh, you know the executives are are incorrectly um, assigning tasks to them so there should be some kind of steering group with a you know a product team that are cross functional and that and so on and so on and and you can communicate these and you know, it's pretty obvious, you know, it's very hard to argue with you is like, if you don't talk that to that team, uh, that's supposed to make money here, you know, and they are there, you know, and that's not gonna work, you know, and then executives usually understand it's like, well, that makes sense, you know, but that's not necessary a data literacy that is often okay let's the data literacy means that okay let's do this psychic learn to accountants you know that's not gonna work all right i don't i don't think that we that the machine learning scientists who spend you know best part of their career studying this you know somehow we're gonna be able to simplify it into a a bucket that it can be you know, consumed by you know um three meetings in a, by someone who doesn't really care about this. So we usually emphasize like cross-functional teams, you know, operational procedures that bring these people together, you know, justify everyone of why you are doing this, why, why you are the only person who can do that, you know, how you are going to help and contribute to this, the final success of this. Uh, because every machine learning problem is a, this is what makes it so difficult is because machine learning problems are very close to the business you know um, software engineering problems are usually solved uh, first and then what's left is the aspects of the business that's very hard to to frame in in engineering questions or engineering tasks and therefore the machine learning teams are always dealing with hard problems you know some people said it's like why is it so hard it's like because that you know it's a really good point that's often yeah. said about like what what's the point of politics? Why do we have political systems? And uh, maybe maybe this is a quote from the West Wing or something. But um, the problems that go to political systems to resolve are the ones not resolved by other easier ways of market exchange or family relations or or whatever. And so yeah, the hardest questions go there. And I think that's a really interesting point and maybe something that people working in data should maybe be a little a little prouder of as long as it leads to some respect for the craft and learning the things to take advantage of that quite privileged position of being handed the hardest problems i think if more people realized yeah the privilege of working on the hardest problems they'd put more work into that instead of just complaining about oh i i built an api and no one called that api so mm. well, why did you build it then? Yeah, that's a, that's a good point. I, I, I usually think that, you know, lack of success brings frustration. It's not, it's not, not difficult problems. It's not uh, anything else. You know, you bring together people who want to solve problems, you know, and you justify of why this is exist and everyone understands that what's my role here and then we're going to make this success and we create new, everyone will love that. All right. Some organization doesn't work like this, you know, 
can we fix everything? Maybe not, but we can tell you that this is what you're supposed to do. And, uh, and that's exactly what, what, uh, what we do is like, we bring people together, you know, we try to be like cheerful and then, and then say, it's like, okay, it is going to work. You know, I point out why you are not succeeding so far. Let's fix that, you know, and then let's try it again. And then maybe that's going to work, you know, changing habits, you know, for example, like data scientists often, because of their work in an experimental phase, they don't appreciate like um, engineering discipline, you know, that software engineers are operating in a very rigid environment where they write code, you know, review it, you know, test it, deploy it, go through this. And, and that's, that's pretty fixed. They're working uh, in a factory, right? They're, it is an industrialized process. They they industrialize the part that can be industrialized, right? Because they know that this is better, so they can focus on abstract, uh, difficult parts of the problem, like that, that that's business relevant. But data scientists often uh, have this kind of uh, laissez-faire, you know, well, we were going to see how it works, you know, and then it doesn't matter, just quick and dirty, and then. That's not how do you do it. You are working on a hard problem. You know, it's not, you're going to fail because you didn't have this kind of engineering discipline. And then even a little amount will going to take you very far. Just to clarify something, is it also the case that you sometimes meet people who give off a sort of religious uh, belief in having industrialized the parts of the problem that shouldn't, right? So I've... I currently work for DataIQ, uh, which is a platform company, right, that has a lot of things that make a lot of this easier if you choose to use them. <laughs> and we try to use all the same arguments you just did um, to try and get people to see a reason to have a platform is to build less stuff yourself and then build these things. But we often meet people who they, they kind of like, well, I've built an MLOps framework in a Git repository and it works in my cloud instance, and therefore everyone should use that. So do you do you also see the complete opposite of people who are very tied to an extremely narrow view of what good looks like, which usually tends to be their own view held by only them and no one else? I, I, I must admit that most of the time we are very customized. So we rarely meet with MLOps platform level problems, um, more like when you deploy a machine learning model into production, that's almost always in the context of some kind of application. It's almost a software engineering External, problem. yeah, absolutely, yeah. Yeah, so it's it's not really, we rarely do MLOps. Um, and and, and I, I think despite the last three years, MLOps systems are still not prevalent. You know, when, when we turn up uh, with a client, they say, you know, what do you use? We use SageMaker. But... I know that they use SageMaker for the notebook servers. You know, th that's not MLOps, you know? <laughs> and then you can imagine what can be their they understanding of the process if that is their um, thinking about that. So, so I, I, I usually don't see too much pushback. I see a lot of pushback from, from process arguments. Uh, so data scientists often uh, uh, internalize this kind of less meeting is better. You know, it could be an email and it's like, but you know, but every meeting will going to be a fight to to set it up, you know, and then some people don't want to participate. But, you know, if you run a cross-functional project, you know, with people who have different mindsets and they think about problems differently, they need to be in the same room to 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 get them on the same page. If you can't do them, you know, shall you continue this project? Because someone will going to pull, pull this, this out. Um, 
documentation requirements, you know, uh, meet, meeting requirements, you know, why do we have stand-ups? And it's like, yeah, because I, I want to know what you are doing. You know? Yeah, <laughs> I can imagine data scientists don't want to hear that. <laughs> Exactly, and 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 this is how you end up with conversations as um, so bad bad engineering practices, and then um, and then and the meetings like every meeting someone says I'm still working on it, I'm still working on it, no progress report, no like because if you don't have a good engineering skill, you are unable to break down your problems into much smaller chunks and then maintain a consistency for the existing chunks and adding new ones, um, and that's why data scientists here say like. Oh, I don't know. Three months, you know, three three weeks, right? Four weeks, you know. I don't know when I'm gonna be be done. That's because you are unable to create a, at least some resembles of a roadmap, right? And then you can break down. And that's how that's what you are listening to in these in these meetings. Because I know that every member on on the team is trained in software engineering, and then they have a, a traditional way of how to solve software engineering problems in data science. And then they just going through that list, and if they blogged. And they say several days the same problem, and then they start complaining that okay, this was a two-day project, and I was sitting on it for a week. All right, and then we can get intervened because that that that's what happens. You know, you you can run into a problem in data science that you are not going to be able to solve, and then you need to tell someone that I need help, and what do we do? Uh, and then you know, people with larger budgets will going to come in, and then would say it's like okay, we're going to put another team on this, or we will going to buy new data for this, or bigger compute, or or something else. But if you don't have this kind of software engineering mindset, you are unable to ask for help, all right? And sometimes there is this kind of fifteen minute rule when they say um, you should solve it in fifteen minutes, and then if you can't, you you need to re ask for help because then you start wasting company. Um, resources and kind of this mm. is the same with data scientists or a larger um, time frame that they can stuck for a very very long period of time and not tell anyone that this is not going to work right so That's that that segues nicely into my final question which is what do you think the effect of these new ai tools is going to be on everything you've just discussed but also on is it going to help make software practices better or worse for data I'm teams very, i'm i'm not very um Maybe my view is very specific to machine learning product management, and because it is niche, it's close to the business problems. It is uh, unique to to the company that is solving that. I rarely see a good use case for AI tools, um, AI platforms or MLOps platforms. Yes, so that those are those are useful, but they are we are not dealing with those either. If you have a business problem and you want to solve it with some kind of uh, intelligent solution, so ML or AI or whatever you are going to have the same problems five years ago and 10 years from now. Uh, no one will going to help you because you are doing it for the first time. And I think that's exactly the, the bottom of this um, this argument. But otherwise, you know, code generation, that's a great tool. But, you know, as I said, you know, you can teach someone to use Fast API in about an hour, right? So it means that <laughs> then you can... <laughs> There's not much can... time to be saved with ChatGPT. <laughs> Yeah, but, but yeah, and 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 uh, I was I was watching uh, LinkedIn, and then someone was saying it's like, oh, I'm using Mongolian transliterated in like Latin language, so he just gave it to to ChatGPT, and then uh, the ChatGPT turned turned that into the Mongolian sentence, and then turned it into English, and then I was just looking at this, and it's like. Looks good to me, but I don't speak Mongolian. So that's, that's the problem with all of these AI tools: is that unless you know the answer already, you have no idea whether it worked or not. Okay, 
and that's exactly why I think that they train data scientists in software engineering is like a a no-brainer even if yeah then they'll use these things to more quickly generate the relevant code and on the other end uh a lot of yeah irrelevant and maybe bad code is going to be generated even more quickly <laughs> my my dangerous optimistic view of that is if that helps people smash into the wall even faster and then realize you need to talk to people you need to ask for help and the only way to solve that is to communicate in some way and some of that communication is by apis and some of it is by is by talking so engineers are for talking is a pretty interesting insight for me from today's uh, episode so thanks for that thanks laszlo and finally before we finish uh, what uh, what platforms can people find you on where is the best place to follow what you're up to uh, we have a discord channel cq4ds.com uh, called quality for data scientists um, I am on the MLOps Slack as well. Uh, it has less traffic recently. Uh, and I am on pretty active on LinkedIn. Find me, uh, Laszlo Schragner. You know, I have a pretty specific name, so hard to miss. You've got very search engine optimized. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, exactly. thanks. thanks for joining us, Laszlo. Thanks for taking the time. Thank you for having me. And thank you for the audience for listening to me. 